In the 18th century, India's share of the world's economy was as large as Europe's. By 1947, after two centuries of British rule, it had decreased sixfold. Beyond conquest and deception, the empire blew rebels from cannon, massacred unarmed protesters, entrenched institutionalized racism, and caused millions to die from starvation. British imperialism justified itself as being for the benefit of the governed. In his book Inglorious Empire, Shashi Tharoor takes on and demolishes this position, demonstrating how every supposed imperial gift from the railways to the rule of law was designed in Britain's interests alone. Welcome to the first episode of Afterwards, a new podcast from Hearst Publishers. This series focuses on six books that shaped Hearst over its 50 years as an independent non-fiction publisher. I'm Nilanjana Roy, author and Financial Times columnist, and I'm here today talking to Shashi Tharoor in his home about his book Inglorious Empire: What the British Did to India, first published in 2017 by Hearst. There is a fundamental imbalance between Britain's own memory of empire and the way the 52 nations that were part of the empire remember British rule. Inglorious Empire argues that there was an idea of India before the British came, debunking the argument often made by colonialism's apologists that political unity was a gift bestowed by the colonizer upon the colonized. When I read Inglorious Empire, I warmed to Dr. Tharoor's punchy take no prisoners approach. He explains Britain's divide and rule policy brings up atrocities from the great famines to colonial massacres and adds a thoughtful coda on the residual problems with colonialism if you don't know where you've come from how will you appreciate where you're going he asks the british today such a pleasure to be here with sashi tharoor in his lovely home dr tharoor in glorious empire grew out of a talk that you gave at the oxford union mm-hmm. a talk that went absolutely viral in 2015 it gained millions of views on youtube looking back what made you expand that fairly rousing speech into this strong and heartfelt polemic you're also a well-known politician from india aside from being a best-selling writer and did you also see a need for formerly colonized countries to reclaim their history Yes, but I'm not sure that I would have actually turned it into a book if it weren't for the determination and enthusiasm of my Indian publisher, uh, David Davida. David um, called me soon after the speech went viral, which took about 24 hours after it was posted on YouTube. I think there were three million downloads in the first 24 hours. He said, "You're going to turn this into a book," and I said, "Don't be silly. Everyone knows the stuff already." And he said, "No, they don't, because if they did, it wouldn't have gone viral." that gave me pause and so i somewhat rashly committed to uh, to writing a book i just thought i'd sort of expand the broad argument i'd made into a book it took of course a lot more effort and research and new research before i could actually sit down to write the book a year later but what was interesting was that in the meantime looking around i began to understand the almost moral urgency 
of a corrective perspective on the subject. Because if you looked at the last 15 years or so of best-selling books, and I'm not referring to scholarship or academic work, because there's obviously serious academic work being done on these areas, but the popular books, the works of writers like Neil Ferguson or Lawrence James or Andrew Roberts and so on, who've all been on the bestseller list in Britain for their books about the empire, they are uniformly not only highly praising the British Empire, but glossing over the atrocities committed in its name. I thought, yes, I mean, there ought to be a corrective perspective. In a sense, I thought everyone knew, as it were, because I had grown up believing in sort of what Americans might call Indian Nationalism 101. Why did we have to overthrow the the unjust colonial yoke, that kind of thing? But the popularity of the speech suggested that a lot of young Indians were completely unaware And the bestseller list testified that the Western world, and particularly Britain itself, was equally in blissful ignorance of the wrongs done in the name of colonialism. So I did, while writing, decide that it was a worthwhile mission, as it were, to try and set the record straight. I decided early on that I wasn't going to produce another narrative history. There are plenty of those around. Uh, I thought the one good thing about the book being derived from a speech was that it offered me an argumentative structure which might make the book more interesting. There was a risk, of course, we just come across as a polemic, which was not quite what I wanted. I wanted it to be a little more, taken a little more seriously than that. But it gave me a chance to um, lay out an argument about the empire in which I first did the basic indictment, then I took all the self-justificatory language that the uh, apologists for the British Empire had used and refuted them point by point. And that made for a a different kind of book from the books that are around on the subject. If I may play devil's advocate for a second and just go to what is currently public perception of the British Empire in Britain, in the UK. In uh, surveys in the UK, you have a very high approval rating for the days of the British Raj and the Empire. They're seen through a kind of soft, rosy glow of nostalgia. And quite apart from the professional historians, I would say that the general public sense of the British Empire is that they weren't that bad. They were well-intentioned. And yes, some harm was done, but that harm was somehow not as egregious or not as not actually malevolent, you know. So you take on the myth of the British in India as benefactors by pointing to many of the Raj's atrocities, the well-documented famines that killed millions, the massacre in Jallianwala Bagh, but you also point to a more systematic destruction of India's economy and a certain culture that helped true for the region after the Mughal Empire. Could I lead you into talking a little bit about both parts of these? Sure. I mean, starting off with where you started off, I'd say that the current um, nostalgia or the the nostalgia that was prevalent before I reignited a debate in Britain or ignited the first debate in Britain about this in this century was reflected in a YouGov poll I found just before the book went to press, and I quoted it, in which something like 59% of the respondents in the UK said they thought the empire was a good thing and they wanted it back which to me was an appalling thing. I mean, it was like people saying that Hitler did a lot of good, they wanted him back in Germany. I mean, uh, I thought it was unbelievable that this was even possible. I realized exactly, as you said, that all they know about colonialism is, you know, gauzy soap operas on television like Indian Summer or uh, the Far Pavilions. They don't read the serious works of either fiction or nonfiction about the empire. And if they did, they only find 
the kind of self-exculpatory justifications that the British began to manufacture only in the later part of the 19th century. In fact, if you look at British public opinion about the empire, when the East India Company was ruling, it was actually much more critical than it became later. They realized how much wrong was being done. There was a great deal of very strong language used in the House of Commons, for example, against the depredations of the East India Company by preachers who thought it was immoral of what was being done. But after the so-called Indian mutiny, when the crown assumed control, and perhaps coinciding with a greater rise of, of liberalism and free press and so on in England, it became necessary both for the domestic audience as well as for the colonialists' own self-justifications to say that they were actually embarked on a civilizing mission and they were there to do good rather than merely to do well for themselves. And this, um, I think, leads us to the second part of your concern. There was undoubtedly in the first century and a bit of British rule a tremendous disregard for Indian interests coupled with an almost extortionate desire to extract profit from ruling India and to send that profit back to England. The East India Company started off as a trading company. While it acquired territory initially just to protect its trade and its traders and its ports and so on, eventually it became the master of all of India. In the process of doing so, it upended centuries of Indian practice I'm not suggesting there wasn't extortion or heavy taxation or loot in the past by various rulers, but at least those rulers spent the proceeds of their extraction in India. The British, on the other hand, unfortunately, we have meticulous accounts they kept, drained these resources out of India and sent them off to England. And as a result, we have found ourselves in a position in which um, a lot of what India had as a very sophisticated, cosmopolitan, and prosperous society, as well as what India had as a thriving economy, which um, accounted in 1700 for 27% of global GDP, and even 100 years later in 1800 for about 23%, that India was wrecked and destroyed systematically so that by the time the British finally left in 1947, it was just over a little 3% of global GDP, and by and large, a poster child for third world poverty, with 90% of our population living under the poverty line. Now, getting there required a whole lot of things, and that's why I'm not sure I can do justice to a summary in a podcast, but the book has them all. It involved the destruction of existing industry. Uh, for example, I gave three examples in my book of the shipbuilding industry, the steel industry, and the well-known example of the textile industry. India was uh, the world's leading exporter of textiles for about 2,000 years before the British came. There are records by Pliny the Elder writing about the Roman Senate debates in which Roman senators deplored the fact that most of Rome's gold and silver had gone to India because of the taste of Roman women for um, Indian muslins and silks and linens and so on, and of course for spices as well. So that's how far back it went. When you think in terms of why the East India Company came in the first place, one of the things they wanted a big dip into was the lucrative textile trade out of India. And they thought if they acquired the textiles in India, they would be able to ship it off to England directly, eliminating middlemen and thereby making more money for themselves. So that was the initial motive. Imagine when you discover that it's always more profitable to trade with a gun in your hand and even more profitable 
when you can pay for the trade, not with the money you've brought, but with money you've extracted from the peasantry in the form of extortionate taxes. And that's what the Brits did. So by controlling the land, they taxed the peasantry. They did so, by the way, at unprecedentedly high levels. And they did so in incredibly inhumane ways. However bad Indian rulers used to be, there was a tradition in our culture that, for example, if there was a drought or a death in the family or a wedding in the family, the taxes were postponed or deferred or reduced or taken later or whatever. The Brits did everything by the book. That was their way of living. And so if you weren't able to pay what was due on the day in which it was due, you were subjected to the most atrocious humiliations, including stripping and rape and, and whipping and flogging and all sorts of things, which were then catalogued by outraged British MPs in the House of Commons debate on the impeachment of Warren Hastings, which became much more than a debate about Hastings alone, but about all the sins of the government established by the East India Company. So we know for a fact that for the longest time, the British had every reason to say that uh, what was being done in their name was actually pretty disgraceful. And that's a point that you insist on. You say that this was not accidental. This was not just a byproduct of creating an empire. It was conscious. The other point that you make, and that several historians have made about uh, the British coming here and changing the ways in which the Muslim community and the Hindu community saw each other, interacted with each other. That's been a tremendously contentious debate. And I just wanted to draw you in here to talking a little bit about what you see as the differences between the other empire, the Mughal Empire, you know, which was here for centuries, and the British Empire. And why do you think divide and rule emerged from the British Empire, but not from there? Well, I mean, first of all, the Mughals uh, assumed they were going to stay around, and they were going to rule the place forever, and they needed to work with the people who were there. And therefore, there was this, uh, even the most fanatic as he's seen of the Mughal emperors, Aurangzeb, had Hindu generals fighting many of his key wars, often against Hindu generals on the other side. And this is simply the, the Mughal practice. Even as the empire began fraying and a lot of the local nawabs, maharajas and potentates, including the Nizam, acquired de facto control of their own dominions and were no longer merely governors of Mughal provinces, you had the same syncretism continuing. You saw it in Hyderabad, you saw it in Bengal, in Awadh, which was um, famously taken by the British somewhat late in the day. In Awadh, famous Wajid Ali Shah, who was the Nawab of Awadh, was a Muslim king who annually directed a Krishna Leela performance in which his begums played the gopis, the maidens dancing around the Hindu god. That was the extent of the kind of syncretism that existed. The British, unfortunately, as I said earlier, talking about taxes did everything by the book, but they also felt that they needed to enumerate, categorize, classify the people they were ruling and the lands they were controlling in order to control them better. So the map, the census, ethnography, all these were tools of the British Empire's colonial project. One of the things they did, I'm sorry to say, was pretty bad sociology, which is they decided that the best thing to do was to pick people they judged to be adequately representative of the communities they wanted to understand and ask them essentially to define themselves. So as early as the 1790s, you have a bunch of Brahmins being called upon to write what was then called the Code of Gentoo Laws, which was uh, needlessly say written by the Brahmins 
in a way that favored them immensely and that I think somewhat distorted the actual reality of their place in Indian society by assigning them a far grander position, citing appropriate sacred texts, also describing a, a more patriarchal India than perhaps had been the case. And the British lapped all this up. The British also felt that to understand you need to categorize, and they found classifications of religion and caste to be particularly appealing to them. When they took over Awadh, Wajid Ali Shah's kingdom, it was quite amazing that they discovered that the Muharram commemoration, which as you all know is a, is a Shia commemoration, mourning the deaths of Hassan and Hussein, and so on, the descendants of the, um, of the Prophet, that commemoration was actually being conducted in the Awadh capital of Lucknow every year, jointly by the Shias, the Sunnis, and the Hindus. Now, this they found completely unacceptable, because that's not the way it was supposed to be in their understanding. So they said, no, 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 Muharram is a Shia event, and therefore only the Shias will be in charge. Awadh, which had never seen a, a Shia-Sunni riot before, found within a few years the Sunnis sniping at the Shias for their conduct of the procession, the Shias sniping back, and sure enough, the first Sunni-Shia riots occurred. Why did the British do this, and did they really think they were doing the right thing? It's very difficult to explain, because certainly Indians had perhaps managed in what the British would have considered a muddle. But in this muddling sort of way, we'd all got along. The history is replete, as scholars have demonstrated, with stories of Muslims repairing Hindu temples that have been damaged in a storm, or Hindus going and worshipping in Muslim Sufi dargahs. These were relatively common practices that the British frowned upon. The kind of fuzziness that existed in Indian social categories, between castes, between religions, that fuzziness was overlooked because of the British cut-and-dried way of doing things. As for divide and rule, which you asked about, right up to the 18... 50s, I would argue there was no systematic divide and rule policy. But the British were appalled to find Hindus and Muslims fighting side by side under the same banner, and indeed under the banner of the fading and rather powerless Mughal king in the name of India against the hated foreign oppressor. And they had always assumed that Hindus and Muslims were sort of you know, chalk and cheese, and they realized that in this particular case, when Hindus and Muslims got together, they felt they had far more in common with each other than they had with the Brits. So the Brits decided that the best way to solve this problem is a famous memo from Elphinstone, which he wrote, Divide et impera was the ancient Roman maxim, and it shall be ours. Divide et impera, divide and rule, then became systematic policy. And because the British liked to categorize people by religion and so on, they decided the religious fault line was the one they would exploit to divide India through. And the obvious fault line became Muslims versus Hindus. It was quite blatant. They systematically went out of the way to encourage a separate sense of Muslim identity amongst India's Muslims, even amongst people who hadn't felt that identity difference before. To the extent that when the Indian National Congress was founded, with the help and the guidance of a Scotsman, actually, Alan Octavian Hume, to represent the aspirational, largely Anglophile sort of lawyer and businessman kind of class, but the aspirations of Indians within the empire. At that point, the Indian National Congress wasn't fighting for independence, but for more rights for the Indians within the colonial system. And they had in their first 20 years, presidents from every community. There were Hindus, Christians, Muslims, Parsis, Northerners, Southerners, Easterners, Westerners, everyone by turns, because we're different present every year. 
the British could very easily work with them. They wrote these decorous petitions in flowery English demanding rights, and the British promptly threw them in the waste paper basket instead of actually trying to co-opt these people. And they thought that they would be better off dividing the Indian national movement by helping encourage the creation of a movement against the Indian National Congress founded on the basis of religion. And they were directly behind the establishment of the Muslim League in 1905. Similarly, the decision to partition Bengal into two, West and East Bengal, was taken precisely with communal ideas in mind. And the British lieutenant governor of the time sold the idea to Muslims or was encouraged to sell the idea to Muslims as being one of asserting rights of Mohammedans, as they called them in those days. When the most important Muslim in, in Bengal, the Nawab of Dhaka, who I think was a Cambridge man, or in any case an Oxbridge man, was um, told about the idea, his first reaction was, that's a beastly idea. I shan't stand for it. Whereupon the British promptly slipped him 100,000 quid and he changed his tune. 100,000 pounds in those days is more like about 10 million today. So that's the kind of direct involvement and instigation the British had in the gradual growth of Muslim separatism. It wasn't yet separate because even when the Muslim League was founded, for another 20 years, Muslims found it possible and normal to be members of both the Muslim League and the Indian National Congress. But as gradually extra efforts were made and were well-financed, you actually found more and more separate consciousness coming. The peak opportunity came during the Second World War when the Congress Party, which had won the, the one set of free and fair elections to all these provinces in 1937, resigned their offices because the British had declared war without consulting elected Indian representatives. And when that happened, the British seized the opportunity to associate unelected Muslim leaguers with all the benefits of the offices the Congress had vacated, they were then in turn able to use their power and pelf and privilege, as well as favors done to them by the British administration, to dramatically enhance their support. So, for example, the League went from 200,000 members at the start of the Second World War to 20 million at the end of it. And those members came attracted by all the opportunities of patronage that the Muslim League was able to engage. Again, the ultimate opportunity the British gave them, with the result that in the first post-war elections of 1946, the League swept all but one of the Muslim-majority provinces, the one being the Northwest Frontier Province, which remained in Congress' hands. But they were able to do that because the British had encouraged them, helped them, supported them, financed them right up to that point. That was divide and rule. And the, the British, who thought divide and rule would be a tool to help them rule, actually ended up, when they were leaving, finding it impossible to keep India united because of the success of their divide and rule policy. I mean, two of the biggest suggestions that you've made. One is that you've been very strong on demanding an apology, and I think that rocked a lot of UK politicians back. They hadn't expected the demand to be made with quite that much seriousness. And you have said, though, that it is important to have some kind of formal acknowledgement of the damage done, the harm done. And the other part of it is that you've said that British schools should teach students about the real history and the impact of the empire. I was horrified to discover that you could actually do A-levels in history, in history, 
without learning a line about colonialism. And do you think Myths. that shows a certain kind of shame more than brazenness? I don't know. I think it's brazenness more than shame. They were, they were happy to brush the unpleasant realities under the carpet. It's, if you like, I mean, just as you read Jane Austen without any consciousness that the lifestyle she describes was financed by the sweat on the brow of the, of the slaves on the Caribbean sugar plantations, it's much the same sort of thing. You describe this idyllic lifestyle. In fact, there's a lot of revisionist fictionalizing going on of sort of, you know, movies uh, showing all these wonderful romances between um, British ladies and the colonial era and Indian gardeners. Well, it never happened, couldn't happen because of the rampant racism that was part of the British colonial project in this country. And what's startling is the myth of benign governance, the myth that the British actually spent their energies in trying to lift up these poor benighted heathens into some form of civilization. That myth has actually gained a fair amount of ground. If you've, all you've studied is, you know, the British resisting and defeating Napoleon and resisting and defeating Hitler and a lot of peace in between, which is a broadly the outline of, of history that they get, you kind of skip the fact that during this peaceful period you were busy exploiting and, and maiming and killing and destroying a country very far away from this idyllic narrative, and that was India. Indeed, one could say similar things about some of the other British colonies at that time, in the Caribbean and in Africa and so on. But the Indian experience is all the worse because it was brought down from such a high. It's been pointed out, for example, that the Jagat Sets, the merchant bankers of Bengal, but who also had a reach beyond Bengal, they actually dealt with more money than the Bank of England. And uh, the revenues of the Emperor Aurangzeb exceeded that of all the crowned heads in Europe put together. So that's the kind of society and economy. It wasn't some sort of barren rock the British came in full of people and animal skins they had to civilize. It was a civilized society they set about destroying. And that is something that people need to discover. I, I found accounts, for example, as late as the 17th century, of British shopkeepers trying to pass off shoddily European-made goods, particularly textiles, fabrics, and so on, as made in India. Because made in India was the hallmark of excellence, the cachet for good quality. Think of that and think of the India we know since, after 200 years of British rule. Dr. Tharoor, Inglourious Empire had a tremendous impact on the national debate in the UK. It became a Sunday Times bestseller, as I remember. And a lot of the debates that it sparked at that time are now right there at the heart of today's debates on nationalism and identity in Europe and the UK itself. A tricky question, but one that I think we have to ask. How can we best challenge the rise of today's dangerous tide of nationalism around the world? What makes nationalism and nostalgia for a mostly imaginary past such a toxic and such a powerful combination? Yeah, very good question to which I don't have a simple answer. I'm very pleased that the conversation has been ignited in England. I, I remember being very touched by an extraordinarily sort of half page in the London Times column by Viscount Ridley. Matt Ridley, one of Sion, or one of the old families descended from the Norman Conquest, I think, and a member of the House of Lords by descent. And I met him on a visit to the UK and said, well, thank you for this. And, you know, I was a bit surprised to hear this coming from a Tory grandee, as it were. And he said, no, as a true conservative, I believe we should have traded with you and not conquered you which I thought was a rather interesting perspective that I hadn't occurred to me. There's been the inevitable pushback 
after a couple of years of fairly laudatory reviews. Now the, And a lot of the pushback, by the way, has come from British Indians who almost seem obliged to justify their choice of new allegiance by poo-pooing the um, prejudices, as they see them, of their former countrymen. It's funny because that's exactly what they did in the 19th century. Isn't it? As well. I mean, Indians against, you know, justifying the ways of the British out here. It's all right. I mean, I'm, I'm happy to see at least people are debating these issues. And they were just brushed under the carpet or the other version was taken for granted as somehow, right, that the British rule was beneficial, the railways and democracy, unity and all these things that I, I debunk systematically chapter by chapter in the book. And the truth is that nostalgia is comforting, right? I mean, I think today in India, we're seeing a version of it as we see all these very popular bestsellers, perhaps not just imagined, but slightly romanticized mythological past, talking about ancient India in the most wonderfully idyllic terms, uh, novels, reinventing characters from our ancient epics, uh, and so on, are bestsellers in India today amongst the English-speaking, English-reading Indian public. And I think uh, it just proves that for every culture and society, people want to imagine the best about themselves. And because they know the reality of their present, it's always more easy as well as more comforting to imagine the best about the past. And I'm afraid the British have done that also to the recent past, which in many ways is an ignoble one. Dr. Tharoor, as we were discussing it isn't possible for us to blame India's problems today completely on the woes and the evils of the past. But is there a way for Britain, in a sense, to make reparations? And what would constitute meaningful reparations? Would it be enough for them to acknowledge what the imperial legacy meant? Or does it actually have to move way beyond that into some gesture towards all of the former colonies? First of all, I, I agree entirely that it's wrong for countries today to attribute every failure or setback to the past because the past now is a while ago. And I've said to young people, I'm not saying this in any way to excuse any of the failings of the present. Those failings that we can trace to our own mistakes or non-performance we should acknowledge and face up to. But rather, because just as normal human beings, we want to know about our parents and grandparents and so on. We have an obligation to know about our country's past as a society. Because if you don't know where you've come from, how will you appreciate where you're going? And to my mind, that is the main reason for recounting this narrative. I have never been a big advocate of reparations. I know I've got saddled with that label because of the Oxford debate. But the topic was decided by the Oxford Union, not by me. And in that debate, I actually said, look a symbolic reparation of a pound a year might actually be enough because it's a way of acknowledging that you owe a moral debt. But obviously that would be impossible to administer for any finance ministry on either side of that equation. So let's move on from money. I would rather talk about moral atonement. And moral atonement can take, in my view, three forms very tangibly and simply. One is the apology. I even suggested that the best time for it would be the centenary of the Amritsar massacre, the Jallianwala Bagh massacre, which came and went on the 13th of April 2019 with a statement by the British Prime Minister, which is more than the victims have had in the past, but which stopped short of actually saying sorry or apologizing. But it went as far, I suppose, as a British politician could go. I rather thought that a representative of the Crown 
could have come to Jallianwala Bagh on the occasion of the centenary and gone on their knees before the martyr's flame to seek, in that sense, atonement. And that would have been perhaps uh, enough for everyone to move into a spirit of forgiveness and reconciliation. But it didn't happen. The second thing I've suggested, and we've talked about this already, is to include it in the syllabus so that people are aware that much of what England is today is owed to its colonial past. The third thing I wanted was a tangible memorial to colonialism. I believe it should take the form of a museum. And the idea of a museum to colonialism or to the imperial past is all the more underscored by the profusion of museums in London, many of which have benefited directly from colonialism. That includes the British Museum, the Victorian Albert, the Imperial War Museum, all of which are full of artifacts and memorabilia from what the British fondly imagined to be their glory days of empire. But we're actually, from the point of view of the victims, days of the most extraordinary horror, suffering, and victimization. And to have an honest museum of colonialism that would enable British school children and tourists and others to go and see for themselves what colonialism meant to its victims, to the colonized. And this is something that I think there is no better city in the world than London to do. But I think these three things, an apology, re-education, and a museum, would probably, to my mind, be enough to constitute a serious admission of atonement. Isn't it time that Britain thought of paying its dues? To end every episode of this series, we're going to ask our guests about the one book that shaped them. Shashi Tharoor, what is the one book that you think really shaped your life? It's extremely difficult to name just one. If I had to, it would almost certainly be the Mahabharata, but it's not one book. It's various versions of the same epic story. But it gives me an abiding faith in the power of narrative, of storytelling, It teaches me an enormous amount of Indian philosophical thought and ideas. It also tells me about what, for 800 years, my civilization considered important enough to retell. This was an epic that was told and retold in various versions over 800 years before it acquired something of the settled quality it has today. So I've read a dozen translations of the Mahabharata. Unlike the Ramayana, which is very much a sacred epic, the Mahabharata is much more, I would say, anchored in real, the real world and real human beings, full of passion, lust, deceit, envy, jealousy, greed, the lot, so that it also lets you become a little aware of human nature in all its flaws. So if I had to think of one book, it would have to be the Mahabharata. That's a wonderful note to end on. Thank you, uh, Dr. Shashi Tharoor, for your time and your insights. Thanks so much. Afterwards is produced by George McDonough. Thank you to Shashi Tharoor for being a part of this episode. Please rate and subscribe on your preferred podcasting platform. It really helps people find out about the show. For more, follow Hearst at Hearst Publishers, Shashi Tharoor at, at Shashi Tharoor, and me at Nilanjana Roy on Twitter. And get news on the latest Hearst books by subscribing to their email updates at hearstpublishers.com. That's hearstpublishers.com. I'm Nilanjana Roy. Thank you for listening. And Dr. Shashi Tharoor, thank you for your time, for this lively conversation, and for your spirited call to action 
through Inglorious Empire and your many other speeches and writings. Thanks for listening to the Afterwards podcast. If you like what you heard, we have a special discount code for any listeners wanting to order a Hearst book. Just visit hearstpublishers.com and use the code AFTERWARDS25. That's AFTERWARDS25 and you can get a discount code on any book Hearst publishes.